We've been going through the series, uh, It Takes Practice to Be a Christian. This summer, like all of you, I've been sitting out there hearing Mark take us through this series of It Takes Practice to Be a Christian. Uh, We become a Christian in a moment uh, where we uh, have faith in Christ and His sacrifice for us, but I don't I don't know about you, maybe some of you got it right off the bat, you got it all perfect, but for me, it takes a little bit of practice, and so uh, to live like a Christian, to live like Christ takes practice, and so Mark's been taking us through this series, looking at many different areas that we need to practice being like Christ, and we're going to continue that this morning. Uh, Earlier this summer, just at the end of June, right Right after school ended, Leah, my wife, and I were able to take a trip down to Naples, Florida. Uh, It was our 10-year anniversary. We got married down there, um, and this was the first time we've been back in 10 years. Uh, We were there for four days, um, and it was beautiful and glorious. And the first day that we were there, uh, I don't think we talked to each other at all because it was nice to just not have kids like walking into the room all of the time and being like, Mom, Dad, I'm hungry. I need this. I need that. Will you play with, play with me? Uh, I need this. And so it was nice to just like have quiet and still. Uh, and this, we have had nights uh, here and there where we've been able to get away, but this was the longest that we've been able to get away in those 10 years of marriage. And so it was just awesome. We got to stay up as late as we want, like 9 o'clock, you know. Uh, <laughs> And then we could sleep as late as we could, like 7 o'clock. And so it was wonderful. It was, it was really great. Uh, but then, like, the days were ours. Like, we got to just do whatever we wanted to do. Do you want to go out to breakfast? Do you want to go to the beach? What do you want to And we could just do whatever we wanted to do. And it was very, very nice. I got to drive a Camaro, a uh, brand-new Camaro, which has nothing to do with this message at all. Uh, but it was fun. It was fun. Um, But then those four days came to an end. We returned home, and I think it was the next day. So we came home, and then the next day uh, we're back into our our family routine, and uh, our girls were doing just what they do around the house and coming in, and I need this, I need that. And Leah turns to me and says, you know, it is so easy to get used to just having to worry about yourself. It's so easy to just fall right back into, I only have to worry about me. And when she said that, I was like, that's my sermon right there. Uh, I didn't know when I was preaching next, but I'm like, I'm tucking that one away uh, because there's, uh, as my father-in-law likes to say, there's a sermon in there somewhere. And there was a sermon in there. It's so easy to get used to just having to take care of yourself. We've been married for 10 years. Uh, we've, our oldest, Riley, is nine years. So we haven't just had to worry about ourselves for nine years. We've had nine years of practice of getting to take care of other people. It took four days for us to be like, yeah, this is easy. <laughs> I, I'm right back into just worrying about me. And maybe a bit ironically, uh, Lee and I are actually watching this show called Alone. I don't know if you're familiar with Alone. It's like a survival show. Uh, There's a season on Netflix. This is the first one that we've watched. And it starts with uh, 10 people are just dropped somewhere uh, in the world. This season takes place in British Columbia on uh, these picturesque mountains with grizzly bears all over the place. Uh, They get 10 items that they get to bring with them. And then I think everybody gets a few other items that everyone has. Um, And they have to survive. The competition is, 
who can stay out here the longest. They have like a radio where they can be like, I'm out, come get me. Uh, and then they'll be taken out. But the, the winner gets like half a million dollars or something like that. And uh, when we first started watching, I was like, half a million dollars to be by myself? Like, give me 10 and, and I'll do it. Uh, as I've been watching, I don't think I would last more than 24 hours uh, in the, the situation that they're in. But even if we're not that kind of alone, and I, you're here this morning, so none of us live that kind of alone. But it is really easy, even in the midst of being around other people, to think only or at least mostly about yourself, to live selfishly. And I think really that's our natural inclination is to look out for number one, make sure that my needs are met and needs loosely defined there, but my needs are met before I take care of others or before I start to worry about other people. And I think that is natural, but we're helped out by other people to pull us into that selfish mode of thinking. Digital marketing experts uh, suggest that we see between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements per day. That during the course of your day, one way or another, through your screen, your TV, billboards, whatever else, you see four to 10,000 advertisements per day. And what is the message that you're receiving through those advertisements? Think of a commercial that you've seen recently. What's the message that they're trying to get at? Is it your neighbor's might be struggling and might need some help, and you could be the solution. No, that's not what those advertisements are targeting. It's our product will benefit you. We will make your life more efficient, more enjoyable, more productive. We can make you more attractive. The, the appeal is for you to think about you. And so naturally, we want to think about ourselves, and then there's so much in our world that says, yes, chase down that thought. Think about yourself. Worry about yourself. And you may not be on a remote mountain in British Columbia. In fact, I can guarantee you, you're not. Uh, or a beautiful beach in Naples, Florida. But even living our normal day-to-day -day lives, it's easy to be effectively alone. At church, you can come to church on Sunday morning, and you're around 100 or so people, and then the service ends, and you're out the door. And you didn't, have, you didn't check in with anyone, no one checked in with you, and you just left. Now, were you alone that Sunday morning? I guess it depends on how you define that. But there wasn't meaningful relationship. You can be around people and it not be meaningful. At work, you can go and just keep your head down, and your job just becomes about how do you serve yourself. Do you do things for other people? Of course. But it's... First, how can I keep my job? So I do the things that I have to do to keep my job. How can I get promoted at my job? And so then you do the things you need to do to get promoted at your job. And maybe you don't really like your job, but you can't just quit. So it's how can I use my job to get a better job? And certainly in that, all of the, that living at your work, you are doing things with and maybe for other people. But at the end of the day, it's to serve you and to serve your needs. Even in our families, we can be alone. Growing up, uh, I was the middle child. My oldest brother passed away when he was 16. So then uh, number two in the family, Josh, uh, he was the one who was doing most of the things first, uh, driving, going off to college, getting married. And so that took a, a lot of attention. 
uh, because he was doing a lot of these things first. My youngest brother, or younger brother, who's also my youngest because there's only one, uh, he was often in trouble. And so that took a lot of attention. And so I was the middle child. I don't begrudge my parents for that. I actually took advantage of that as best as I could. My older brother was getting attention. My younger brother was getting attention. And I knew that as long as I didn't do anything as bad as my younger brother was doing, then I was in the clear. I was good. If my grades were slightly better and the cops weren't knocking on the door, then I was fine. And so I lived in that zone, and I found how to just fly under the radar. And in my family, I was effectively alone. I didn't have meaningful relationships with my brothers, and for my teenage years, even with my parents, I didn't have meaningful relationships. I was living alone. So even though we are born into families, that doesn't mean that we can't be alone in our families. And so this idea that we've been looking at all summer of it takes practice. I think that living with others takes practice, but the Bible doesn't set the bar at live with others. The Bible raises the bar, God raises the bar, and says to live for others. And certainly living for others is something that it takes practice to do, that it is not natural, and there's not a lot in the world that pulls us in that direction. And so we have to practice living for others. And as Mark's been going through this series, he's uh, started each week looking at some, one part of 1 Corinthians 13. And there we get a definition of love. Love is patient, kind, it does not envy, it is not boastful, arrogant, rude, self-seeking, irritable, nor does it keep records of wrongs. All of these definitions of what love is assume that we have meaningful relationships with other people. Because what does it matter if I'm patient, kind, I don't envy, I'm not boastful, I'm not arrogant or rude, and I live alone? I live by myself, and I never have interaction with anyone else. Am I loving? Not in any meaningful way. And so Paul assumes that we are living in meaningful relationships, close-knit communities with other people. This is the assumption. Love only meaningfully exists as it interacts with others. And it's easy, again, for us to be around other people, whether it's at church, at work, at our job, maybe taking your kids to extracurricular activities, maybe your own uh, extracurricular, it's an easy word to say, uh, that you are a part of. And there are other people around, but they're kind of just like side characters to the one-person play of your life that they don't have a meaningful role for you. But again, love only meaningfully exists as it interacts with others. And love, especially Christ-like love, requires us to practice it, to choose it, to put it into action. And I think that the local body of Christ or the local church is the place that we're supposed to practice it. Jesus says, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That it starts here. Certainly, that love is supposed to go beyond these walls. For God so loved the world, and then Jesus called us to go out into the world and make disciples. But where does that start? It starts here. It starts with us. They will know we are His disciples by the way that we love one another. And so, we practice that love here We practice self-sacrificial love in this community, and then we take that beyond these walls. 
But this is the practice field. This is where we practice loving one another. So I've titled this message, What's Mine is Yours. Because I think the picture that we get from the people of God from the Old Testament into the New Testament is that they are supposed to be a people who saw their resources and their opportunities as ways to benefit the people around them. The base assumption was supposed supposed to be whatever God has given me is to be used for the well-being of the broader community. And again, I think that that is the picture that is painted from Genesis through Revelation. Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus, he helped to found uh, many of the local churches in the New Testament cities all throughout Asia Minor and even into Europe. One of those churches was in the city of Philippi. And so we're going to look at Paul's words to that church, uh, starting in Philippians chapter 2, because the challenge that he has for them, I think, is essentially practice living for others. So we're going to read from Philippians chapter 2. We'll start, uh, we'll read one through four. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Now, there are several places in Scripture where the, what the authors are communicating is totally unambiguous, and I love and hate those passages. I love them because they're very clear. I hate them because, like this, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's a lot less wiggle room in that than I would like to bake in to that. Paul doesn't say, do most things out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but Saturdays, that's for you. Do whatever you want. On the weekends, you worked hard all week, but the weekends are yours. Do whatever you want with them. Chase after your selfish ambition on the weekends. That's not what Paul says. Do most things without selfish ambition or vain conceit, but your money. Now, you worked hard for your money. So that money is yours. That money isn't anybody else's. Nobody can tell you what to do with your money. Your money is yours. That's not what Paul says. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's pretty clear, but it's also a really high bar that we are supposed to attain, that we are supposed to chase after. I would venture to say that it will take practice for us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But that's the practice that Paul is calling us to. So what's the alternative? If we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Paul continues and says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And sometimes this is easy. There are people in our lives who it's not that hard, certainly Everyone in our life makes it difficult at times. But there are people in our lives who it's easy to look at them and value them as more important than ourselves. Maybe it's your spouse, your children. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your lifelong best friend. There's someone in your life where you're like, I, would, I live as if they are more valuable than me. But we know that the testimony of Scripture is not the people who it's easy to love and value more than yourself, value them more than yourselves. This is about everyone. And so what about your boss? Do you value them more than you? What about 
your employees? Do you value them more than yourself? Your coworkers, the annoying ones, you know who I'm talking about. Do you value them more important than yourselves? What about the person in church who thinks differently than you, who posts their dif- different beliefs on social media, and you see them, and you want to unfollow them, and you do? Do you value them more important than yourself? Or do you write them off and say, well, they're not more important. I have to look out for me. Paul continues and says, do not look out for your own interest, but each of you for the interest of others. Now, there is, and I'm sure Paul knew this, uh, but there is inevitably going to be a rub. There's going to be some tension that arises when I look out for the interest of other people. I have this thing in me that some people call pride, uh, that I assume everyone else is like me, that the things that I like, the, the way that I want the world to be, everybody wants it to be that way because why wouldn't they, right? Obviously, I've got the best ideas. And so people think like me, and then every once in a while, I'll share some of those ideas, and I'll realize by reading faces or hearing words uh, that they have different interests than I do. Paul says, not to look out for my interest, but each of you for the interests of others. Tensions will rise when we are sharing our interests and realizing, wait, <laughs> there's a difference here. And so how do we do that effectively? And I think, again, the church is supposed to be the place where we practice that. Believe it or not, we don't all believe and think all of the same things. And that's going to There's going to be tensions as a part of those disagreements, but how do we practice humility and looking out for the interest of others? And next week, we're actually going to talk specifically about that. How do we practice living in tension? But this is what Paul is calling us to, to be humble, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, consider others more important than ourselves, and not to look out for just our interest, but instead the interest of others. This isn't just Paul's wild idea that he came up with. He says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, that Christ Jesus is our example for this. He goes on, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying the reason why we are to be humble, why we are to look out for others, is because this is the example we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was God, but he gave up everything, not for his own sake, but to save us. And so we should be willing to give up everything for others, even to the point of death. And Paul, writing to uh, the church in Rome, in Romans, says that while we were enemies with God, Christ died for us. So again, it's not who are the people who it's easy to sacrifice for and to love, but those who you would consider your enemies. We are to follow this example of Christ for all or with all people. And in verse 6, so Paul says, uh, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Who made Jesus God? trick question. He just is and was forever. 
he was God. That was rightfully his. No one gave it to him. He didn't buy it. He didn't steal it. That's his. And yet, we read, he did not consider that which was rightfully his something to be used to his own advantage. So what do you have that is rightfully yours? I mean, you can fill in the blank with plenty of things. Your natural talents, gifts, and abilities, your natural interests, your hard-earned money, your home, the things that you buy with that money to provide for your family. These things are rightfully yours. But we're not supposed to view them as things to be used to our advantage. But instead, we use them to benefit others. And so this morning, I want to look at two uh, specific resources that we have, that all of us have, that we can use to benefit other people. And they're probably not the resources where, that you would first go to in your mind, but I think we're, we all have them and there are wide-reaching implications. And I don't think we'll be able to touch on all of them, but I, I trust that the Spirit will, will do that in you. The first is our actions. I want to look at our actions and our attention. All of us have the ability to act, to do things, and all of us have a focus, a time to give to other people. And so, our actions. Paul tells us to have the, mind, the same mind as Christ. But that doesn't simply mean to believe the, the same things as Jesus or to think the same things as Jesus. When he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, what does he then describe? He doesn't describe the things that Jesus thought. He describes the things that Jesus did. And so, to have the mind of Christ is to put them into action. For Jesus, that meant he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death. And there are plenty of examples throughout the, the four biographies of Jesus that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of ways that Jesus used his actions for other people. But I don't want to look at specifically uh, any of them this morning. We could spend all day looking at all of them. Uh, but I want to point out a point or a place where Jesus tells us that our actions matter and that our actions are not supposed to be used for ourselves, but instead for other people. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to read a little bit of a chunk here, verses 31 to 46. There we read Jesus saying, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, we will sit on his glorious he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, what, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These are sobering words from Jesus. They should be sobering words as we hear them. What's the determining factor between the sheep and the goats? Between those who enter eternal punishment and those who enter eternal life? It's what they did, right? It's how they treated other people. And so when we make salvation simply praying a prayer, having a personal relationship with Jesus, maybe coming to church on Sundays, when that's all that being a Christian is, I think we rob the good news of being good news for the world. That we are called to, yes, my uh, salvation is personal. I do have a relationship with Jesus, and our faith should be grown in private, but then it should be expressed publicly and in a way that is good news for all people. Jesus couldn't be more clear that it should, our faith should have natural good news implications for all people, and especially the hungry, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, that our faith should be good news to them because it meets, certainly it meets spiritual needs, but Jesus is talking about meeting physical needs here as well. And so our faith should compel us to action that is good news for other people. And the, the, category, the categories of people that Jesus mentions, he calls the least of these. I don't think it's because Jesus actually thinks those people are the least, that they have the least value. But I think he knows his audience, he knows humanity, that we put people in categories that we think are less than. And Jesus says, those people that you have considered the least that's where you'll find me. If you want to serve me, you'll serve them. If you want to be with me, you'll be with them. So how are we doing? How am I doing? Again, those are sobering words to hear. But it's not simply about what we do. Certainly, Jesus is very clear here. Our actions matter, that we are to use our actions for other people. But we are able to do for others far, from far away without ever actually entering into relationship with them. And I think what we see in Jesus, if that, His is the example that we are supposed to follow, then it's more than just what we have to offer uh, for people, not just their material needs, but something more than that. And there's this story uh, in Mark chapter 5 that I've has been familiar to me for a while, I'm sure uh, familiar to many of you, but I've I've come to see it differently and appreciate it differently uh, recently. And so I want to show that Jesus doesn't just give his actions to other people, but he gives his attention to other people as well. So we'll read in uh, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. 
Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. There's plenty that we could unpack from that. But what strikes me and what has struck me recently in that story is that Jesus was interruptible. That Jesus was okay with whatever he was going to do not being the thing he did immediately. That Jesus was okay with being interrupted. He didn't get irritable. He didn't get grouchy. Jesus, we, uh, we picked up in the middle of the chapter, but the chapter 5 starts with them going uh, across the lake to, the, to a different region. And there he heals a demon-possessed man. And it's, uh, it's a big deal. And he has a whole day there pigs die. You can read it yourself. Um, Crazy story. But so Jesus spends some time over there and then kind of gets run out of town. So they hop in the boat and they come back. And I I don't know. Jesus isn't me and praise God for that. Uh, But like Jesus probably had some idea of what he was going to do when he came back. If I were Jesus, it'd be like, all right, that was rough. I'm going to take a nap. Uh, but Jesus comes across, he reaches the other side, and says, while he's still at the lake, a large crowd gathered. That he doesn't even have time to get the boat tied to shore. He doesn't have time to get everything off the boat. That he's still, they're still unpacking from this trip, and a large crowd gathers. But Jesus' reaction is not to th- throw them out, to tell them, hey, come back tomorrow. Uh, I'm a little tired right now. Before Jesus even has a chance to react to this crowd, a man comes, throws himself at his feet, and says, my daughter is dying. What does Jesus do? Does he say, you're not the only one with needs. Look at this large crowd. Let's see who has the most important need. Or he, does, he just goes with him. And the crowd doesn't say, clearly Jesus is busy. We'll leave him alone. The large crowd just follows with him. And they're all en route to presumably heal this girl. And then this woman, who clearly has heard about Jesus, and she's suffered for over a decade. And we don't know much other than she uh, had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So in this culture, she was probably, for those 12 years, deemed unclean because of this blood issue. She probably didn't have uh, many opportunities to gather with her community, with her family. She had spent all that she had trying to figure out what is wrong with me, how can I get better, and the only results made her worse. And so I'm sure this woman is desperate. 
She feels like an outcast. If there is a person who is the least of these, it is her. But she's heard about this Jesus. And she thinks, if I can just get close enough, certainly this rabbi doesn't want to talk to me. He doesn't care about me. But he might be so powerful that if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And so she does. She wiggles her way through the crowd, and she's able to touch him. And Jesus feels the power go out of him, and he stops. He says, who touched me? And the disciples, true to form, are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Like, we're, remember the large crowd that's been following us since the boat? Those guys, they're still here. It could have been anyone who touched you. But this woman knows what has happened to her, and she, she is trembling with fear. She's in big trouble. She thought she could get in and get out without being noticed, but the rabbi noticed, and now she's in trouble. And so she throws herself at Jesus' feet, tells the whole truth, and he, I imagine him stooping down, picking up her head, looking into her eyes and saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. That if what Jesus came for was just to give his actions, his ability to people, the action was done as soon as she touched him. That Jesus could have kept on going. Transaction complete. She got what she wanted. Jesus gave it to her. Nobody has to know. It's done. But Jesus wanted to give her more than that. And so he stops. He says, who touched me? And I can imagine being the father of this girl who's dying saying, Jesus, if you don't get to walking, I'm going to be the one who touched you. Like, come on, we got to get to my daughter quick. But Jesus was interruptible. He knew that there was a need that needed to be met. And it wasn't the healing from the bleeding. It was this woman who had lived for over a decade thinking that she was worthless, thinking that she had no value to society. But then the God of the universe stooped down to her level and said, daughter, you've done well. Your faith has made you well. Jesus restored her dignity. And this is the way that Jesus interacts with everyone. Read through the Gospels. Jesus is always going somewhere to do something, and rarely does he do that thing. Or he does 10 things on the way, because people always wanted his attention. And Jesus was always willing to give it to them. And so, how interruptible are you? When people interrupt your plans, hey, can you help me with something? Hey, I just got to ask you a quick question. Or parents, mom, dad, I'm hungry. Can you play with me? Can you do this? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? What is your natural reaction? Is it one of getting down on their level and saying, what do you need? Or is it, not right now. I can't have, don't you see I'm trying to do something? And now, parents, I want to let you off the hook real quick. I have little children, nine, four, and three. I can't say yes to all of the things that they ask me to do. I would literally do nothing other than that. We would never have food in our refrigerator or money in our bank account. So I can't, you can't always say yes. But parents, I was a youth pastor for a while. I will tell you that when your teenager asks you to do something, say yes, because that's the last time they'll ask you for the next like five months. So, uh, but we can't say yes to everything, but what is your natural mode when your schedule, when your plans, when your idea of what the day, the next hour will look like is interrupted, how do you respond? Or are you even so busy that you don't notice 
that God is trying to interrupt you. Jesus felt the power come out of him. He was in tune with what was going on around him. He wasn't just interruptible when it smacked him in the face, but when there was a little tug on his garment, he was ready. Who needs me? What's up? That he was looking to be interrupted. God, what are you doing? Help me to have eyes to see, and then help me to divert my plans to do what it is that you're calling me to do. Jesus certainly gave of his actions for other people. But more than that, he gave his attention as well. That he restored the dignity when he talked to people, when he interacted with people. I think of other stories that we won't talk about at length this morning, but uh, when, the chil- when chi- a group of children tried to uh, come and see Jesus and his disciples say, get these kids out of here. This is a busy man. And what does Jesus say? No, let the children come to me. Again, in that culture, children were annoyances. They were pests. They weren't to be talked to. They were to preferably not be seen or heard, but certainly not heard. And here they are trying to come to Jesus, and the disciples are like, whoa, who do you think this guy is? You, you can't see him. And Jesus is like, no, come, let the children come to me. Uh, John chapter 4 is a pretty famous story. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman at the well. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Those are only two things, but those are actually strikes one, two, and three against her. She even brings that up to Jesus. You shouldn't be talking to me. But Jesus does talk to her, and he doesn't just say, hey, this is what you need, take it and go. He does eventually get there, but he has a conversation with her. He treats her as an equal in their conversation. He entertains her questions. He asks questions in response to her. Jesus gave of his attention. At the beginning of all of this, we saw Paul implore us to have the same mind as Christ. And we've seen at least two ways that Uh, we've seen two examples of Christ's mindset and what that did. That meant that his actions were for other people. It meant that his attention was for other people. We sang this morning, Christ be magnified in me. These are two ways that Christ can be magnified in you, that your actions are not about serving your own selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, you consider others more important, and so you act on their behalf. Instead of using your time and attention to think about yourself and your needs and your interests, you use your attention to let other people know that you matter, that you're important. And so Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. To let your mind be like Christ and to have it move you to action. When it comes to your actions and your attention, how can you better serve those around you? How can you, with your time and attention, start putting the needs of others before your own? And how can you practice valuing the interest of others and not just yourself? I think there are thousands, myriads of ways that you could apply this to your life. Ultimately, I trust that the Spirit will do that, but I think God can do that in your jobs, that you can make that a place where you aren't just looking out for your own interest, but you're looking out for the interest of others. I think that God can do that in your families, that your families aren't about serving you, but you are about serving your family. And I think that God can do that here in this church. And again, I think that this is prime practice to have the mind of Christ, 
to look out for the interests of others. There are, even within this church, there are plenty of ways to do that. By serving, by getting involved uh, in a ministry and serving there, making it about whoever it is that you're serving in that ministry. We've had uh, over the last year, and there are more coming up, plenty of ladies' events and men's events, and it can be easy to look at those uh, and be like, well, a paint night? Well, I'm not an artist, so that's not for me. But maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about being with other people. Maybe it's about the interest of others. And so you can be a part of that event so that you can form relationships there. But one way that I think we can practice this that is so, I think, key to our discipleship is in small groups. By being a part of a small group where you are together with people who think differently, who act differently, who have different ambitions than you do, who have different interests than you do, and getting to know them, and then practicing, being humble with them. And so this week and next week, uh, at least, uh, we're going to have a table in the back, small group table. Uh, Chick will be back there after the service so you can see him. But back there, we have a flyer that I remember to bring with me this time. So you're far away, but it looks like this. Um, and we have three uh, kind of pre-packaged small groups that are ready for you to join. Uh, one is looking at The Chosen, that TV series, seasons one and two. Uh, there are study guides that go with that. There's one for married couples that will start in October. There's one where you'll have the opportunity uh, to create and to study. Uh, the, uh, Mike and Ann Schwagert have an art studio in Pittman, and so they are going to open it up for an hour of creating, and then you'll do an hour of study. Uh, I've been told that no artistic ability or history is necessary. Uh, so anyone can be a part of that. And then you can always start your own small group. Uh, if you're not sure how to do that, who would be a part of it, there's a form that you can fill out. Let us know uh, where you live. We'll try to connect you with people in the same area. And all of this you can do at that table or online on this form. There's a QR code. So if you want to take it home and pray about it, and then during the week God has led, then fill that out online, and we'll be in touch to make sure that you're connected with a small group. But I think in that setting, in this setting, it's easy to be around people, but also to practically be alone. That when there's hundreds of people, sure, you're here and you're with people, but you can leave, you can hide. But in a small group, it's harder to hide. I think that's where we practice love. That's where we practice meaningful relationships. And I guarantee you that uh, you will run into moments where your interests and others' interests are different. And so you'll practice working that out together. And I think that will be a key part of your discipleship. So I pray that you would uh, pray about it and then make that step to have small groups be a part of your life this upcoming year. That is, if for whatever reason, that is not the decision that you make. There are plenty of ways to put into action uh, living for others and having the mind of Christ in your life and in this church. So I pray that the Spirit would lead and guide you in that. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you that you have given us an example in your son, Jesus Christ. That you have not just told us that this is what is expected of us, these are the rules that we have to follow, but you have given us an example in Jesus Christ and that through your spirit, we are now empowered to follow that example. So I pray, Lord, that it would be our ambition to have the mind of Christ. That you would show in us, expose in us 
where we have been looking out for ourselves and our own interest, where we've been chasing down our selfish ambition. And would you help us to count that as dead and help us to live and walk in newness of life, a resurrection life, where we are no longer looking out for ourselves, but instead we see all the things that we've been given by you, even the breath in our lungs, is not to be used for us, but is to be turned around to praise your name, to make your name great and known, to lead us to action that is good news for all people, and our att- turn our attention to those who need to know that they matter, that they're seen. Give us eyes to see. Help us to be interruptible like Jesus was. Your spirit is the only one who can do that work. And so, so Lord, I pray that you do that work in us in this moment, through this week. Help us to put these things into practice. It's in your name we pray. Amen.